topic. <laughs> and um, and I'm wondering, you know, as I, I see you, there's so many wonderful things happening with this group. You're really in a time of transition and uh, growing up as a group. And uh, there's so many different things that, um, that I could go into. Uh, personally, I've been working on a few different things on um, bodhicitta, which is awakening mind. I've been studying um, shamatha practices fairly deeply to understand whether and how shamatha, it's possible to practice shamatha in a non-monastic setting in the midst of a busy life and to have every action come forth from the practice of shamatha. And uh, also, I've been, um, on the psychological end of it, I've been looking uh, more deeply into the Abhidharma Kosha as a source, as a compendium of Buddhist teachings that's really helpful in understanding both shamatha and vipassana aspects of sazen. So, uh, I don't know what you want to discuss. Like, if you want to talk about something that goes with uh, what the group is going through, or if you want to go directly into a Dharma topic, or talk about how to um, be quiet in the midst of everyday life. And I'll tell you, let me tell you also a little bit of where I was last week. So last time I came and talked with this group, I talked about old age and death and coping with the same and how it's not uh, you know it's not limited to one or two people <laughs> that this is something we all have to go through and so uh, last week the week before I was in New York helping my family helping my mother I have various relatives who are uh, very old and very sick and four out of five had dementia. On April 29th, uh, one uncle died. On May 6th, the second uncle died. And then that set uh, a third relative in a dementia tailspin. So I was going back to New York to address that. So then I came back. I was actually back here in time for the talk. But um, the uh, plane was late because of thunderstorms and um, then I fell into bed late at night and then was awakened by animal and went and dealt with that and didn't look at my calendar and had the conception that I had some time which was wrong didn't even think about it until Wednesday when I got a phone call from Gil <laughs> saying gee <laughs> uh, I thought you were going to come. So uh, what are you interested in today? Where's your interest actually today? I'm not going to answer questions question by question, but I am interested in not wasting our time together and speaking to the point. So, I don't know what shamana practice is. Shamata? Shamata, I don't know what that is. Oh, yeah. Explain, uh, the Zen tradition uh, uses... Uh, Sanskrit as a basic language, and we use Pali. So what, what Zen peoples call shamatha, we call 
called Samatha. When, they, when we call Vipassana, they call Vipassana. Okay, so you know what Samatha is. No. 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 Okay, well in that case... <laughs> No, I, 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 let me hear a few more. Uh, a few more. It, oh, I guess you have to know what it is to know whether you're interested in it. <laughs> okay, so I'll tell you that much. So uh, shamata or samata is um, shama. Sama means the same or equal. And ta is the condition of or the state of or the establishment of. So it's a, a, uh, an establishment of equal conditions in the body for practice, otherwise known as stability, concentration, quietness, and stopping. Okay, and it's a precondition for vipassana. And I understand that in um, the vipassana tradition, uh, shamatha arises from vipassana. There has to be a certain amount of stability, but also with insight, a lot of the uh, hindrances are clarified and brought to rest so that you can sit more quietly. But there's also an actual discipline of shamatha, which is the yogic discipline of how to sit and how to concentrate and focus and what are the causes and conditions in life that make it possible to do. So I've been studying that for about 25 or 30 years. But in the last um, two or three years, uh, I've gone into it into, into, in a detailed way, um, and particularly uh, with this job of president of San Francisco Zen Center. Uh, it's a kind of a spiritual strength training for shamatha, or samatha. Okay, so any, just speak, you don't have to. It just seems to me, for, for us right now, that, that is a, a, a wonderful thing to, to examine in the context of how to maintain sangha through transition, particularly in relation to samatha, shamatha. Yeah. Yeah. I would also say that I mean this building will be a big deal. We've been nomads so far, and so I know Zen Center has a number of properties. <laughs> and um, I mean, if you want to get to the chase, there's going to be an interesting. You know, people can get into holy wars over the color of the carpeting. Right. Um, so maybe yeah. I'll talk about samatha as uh, property <laughs> management <laughs> samatha practices. <laughs> okay, okay, good. Yeah, I'm very taken, very interested in, in, in shamatha and vipassana, especially in the context of daily life, not in the monastic setting. I was, I was going to build a, to what extent can one, what, what is the path? Okay, so how to build that in a lay life outside an enclosed setting? Yeah? I, I'm, I'm interested in the same, how to maintain that in kind of chaos. Okay, chaos. But also, how to maintain that in the of going back and forth to deal with older parents or Okay, so um, chaos, but also um, how to deal with emotional ups and downs in, in, uh, in a challenging situation like helping people. Yeah, okay. That's a good, that's a, a, a topic I'm very interested in. <laughs> so uh, shall we go in that direction? Is that a good one? Okay. So um, let's see, where to begin? 
Traditionally, shamatha has been taught as possible only in a monastery. So traditionally, it has been a practice for monks. And uh, that's because um, from pre, um, pre-Buddhist times um, to the present, people have been studying certain conditions under which the practice of shamatha is easy and under which the practice of shamatha is hard. So the traditional understanding is that it's easy to uh, maintain all the conditions for shamatha in a monastery and very hard in the midst of lay life. So let me talk a little bit about what the conditions are and um, why I feel that's not so. I mean, it's, uh, it's so in a general sense, but doesn't have to be so in a specific sense. Okay. So um, the conditions for shamatha, these are traditional conditions, and shamatha is actually a pre-Buddhist practice also. It's a Buddhist practice. It's also a state that one enters light shamatha states in sports, in uh, being a musician, you know, in the flow, and uh, in yoga, and in many other uh, practices in which one is concentrated. And many of us have experienced light shamatha states at work or uh, while um, uh, sailing a a model sailboat with a child and and that kind of thing. So the characteristics of shamatha in the beginning are a kind of concentrated ease and joy and a mental and emotional stability and sense of well-being. So those are the, uh, that's the direction. So if you orient on that kind of feeling and go towards it, um, you'll be um, approximating what uh, shamatha might be. So uh, many, many teachers, as I said, have said that this is only possible in a monastery. But there are some teachers who disagree and say that there are simple conditions. They say, these teachers say that if it were impossible to attain shamatha outside of a monastery, then there wouldn't have been any non-monks who actually were concentrated and calm. But that's not true. There are people who aren't monks who are concentrated and calm and manage to live their whole lives that way and be beacons for other people. So um, because of that, the, uh, that group of teachers says, well, what are the simple conditions for shamatha that are available outside a monastery? And then, of course, there are Zen practitioners who say there are conditions for um, working with shamatha, and they are much easier in a monastery because they're given. But what about when there's no monastery? You know, so in a sense, there's no conditions for no monastery, and there's conditions for a monastery, and there's no conditions for no monastery, etc., etc., etc. You've heard this sort of um, thing. It's it's wordplay, but also there's a meaning to it. The conditions for shamatha start with nourishment, and there's several kinds of nourishment. The first one that we're all familiar with and that is hard for everyone to do is nourishing the body. So um, 
Nourishing the body means food, sleep, intimacy, um, material resources, and acknowledgement in one's life to the extent necessary to feed us physically and physiologically. Does that make sense to you? Um, so uh, in the monastery, there's special conditions for this. And in a lay life, there's special conditions for this. There are different conditions. So let's talk a little bit about um, what makes a monastery such a good place. So uh, that's, I'm not talking about it so that we'll all go to monasteries, but trying to tease out what are the special conditions that one might find there that, um, you know, we don't have to make imitation monasteries in our homes, but um, what, what's the direction? So first of all, a monastery is a place where uh, you know that um, meals are coming. <laughs> you know, one way or another, whether begging or... Uh, whether they're donated or whether, as in Tassajara, there's a central administration that, you know, sends food or, you know, many different ways. So monastery is a place that you know that there are times when people sit down and uh, take food and that it's going to be enough to sustain life. And... um, that the resources for sitting are available. Like, for instance, there's a place to sit, and people agree that there's a value of sitting so that you know that there's going to be times that are available to settle down, and cushions or, you know, pieces of cloth or whatever to sit on. This sounds all very straightforward, but if you think about... um, being at home and getting the kids off to school and, um, you know, uh, having um, three or four different agendas going on in your house or else being uh, single and having to go shopping and provide these things and answer the telephone or having to go to work and having being on call and having people call you all the time, it becomes a little more complex. So... Let's just take that nourishment and uh, break it down yet a little bit more. So meals and sleep are important to regulate for a sense of well-being. And then um, also, it's important uh, in a monastery, it's important that there's no sense of threat. For instance, right now, I don't know if you knew that... um, the Navy is planning a bombing range a few miles away from Tassajara. And um, so uh, we're all engaged in protesting this, and you're welcome to protest it too if you want to get on the site. But uh, if there's sounds of bombers flying over Tassajara, <laughs> uh, you know, not only the natural, the uh, Ventana wilderness, but also the monks themselves will suffer. Um, But uh, so there's, or, you know, if there's one of the things that conditions in a monastery is that it feels safe, it feels free of threat, it feels enclosed. You know that a monastery is a safe container. And you get this in 10-day retreats, you know, in long retreats. You know it's a safe container. You know there's a mission control. 
You know, that if you have a question, somebody's going to be there to answer it. And this gives you another sense of what's in a monastery, is Dharma companions and Dharma teachers. There are people who have walked the path before, who have um, either in the present, uh, actually in the place, or in the past who have helped establish the place. And there's also like-minded people, people who are interested in the same thing, interested in sitting, interested in studying the self. And um, I think those are some of the big pieces for um, what the place needs to have in it. But also there's inner conditions that one has to practice. So one has to practice a certain level of contentment with what one has. Contentment with having whatever the subject is be the meditation subject. And one also has to be willing to stay close to the purpose and not get dispersed in um, other things. So it's pretty easy to see how those are, uh, those are much easier to establish in a monastery, isn't it? But how do we establish them at home? So that's what I've been studying. So the first thing is uh, nourishment. Uh, nourishment, um, nourishing the body is possible at home. You know, it's actually possible at home. And if, you, if we have our home or our room or whatever set up in a way that signals physical nourishment, that there's actually a, a feeling of spaciousness and um, generosity in the environment, it's much easier to um, concentrate. If um, we uh, know where our food comes from, or we have some sort of dharma sense about food, it makes taking that food in as nourishment a lot easier, and taking it in appropriately a lot easier. So for instance, if we, um, there are a couple different ways to go here. One is that we can uh, buy food that we know was um, put together and grown without harm. So that's one way to do it. Another way to do it is by joining all beings and just eating what they eat. Either one is nourishing. One nourishes the body directly and the other one nourishes a sense of compassion which makes it easier for the um, kind of factors of concentration to come together. So um, we can maintain, maintain a sense of um, spaciousness and order, even in the midst of um, everything that we have to do. And this is something that I've been cultivating, like how to open my mail, you know, next to a mailbox, next to a trash bin so that I can uh, throw out the things that are just going to clutter up the house. You know, how to wash the dishes after I've eaten. This is all stuff your mother taught you. <laughs> but it just happens to be very uh, helpful for shamatha practices as well. But also, how to take care of oneself physically so that there's a sense that the body is physically nourished. So for instance, um, 
making sure that the place that we sleep um, is a good place to sleep, you know, uh, making sure that our clothes and our bodies are tended uh, so that there's a real sense of care, a real sense of love and acceptance. That's nourishing. Um, exercise. Am I getting boring? This is so. This is so. This is so kind of nuts and bolts. <laughs> I'm almost ashamed to say it in a Dharma talk, but exercise, an exercise that doesn't give us the sense of over effort or under effort, but gives us the sense that the body is really being fed, in a physiological way. So, um, for instance, you know, if you if you exercise, the heart beats and toxins are cleansed. But also the blood flows and it means that the nourishment can make it to the tips of your fingers and the tips of your toes. It doesn't just kind of stay in you and then pass out the other end. So that's a way to uh, work with nourishment. And also make sure the food is balanced in some way. So uh, that it's not just, um, you know, pretzels or canned soup although that is that's you know you can get pretty good canned soup but you know there's a way to um, to work with this with mind with the same kind of mindfulness you bring to the cushion or to the chair so that's nourishment of the body and it's also physically nourishing to come together with dharma companions you know that that's a you have a sense of quietness that comes from quiet people all around you even if they're a little bit restless they're still much quieter than most of the people all over the uh, town so um, that's there's a physical sense there and um, nourishing the intention is the second kind of nourishment and knowing what one's intention is, it's very helpful to, nur- you know, it's, it's helpful to know what it is. If you're thinking about nourishing it, first know what it is. So um, I intend to uh, grow into being a calm and peaceful person for the benefit of all beings. Or I intend to cultivate body, speech, and mind as a field of awakening for all beings. So something like that. So you can take the time to think of uh, ten words or less of what, what actually is the intention so you know how to nourish it. And then think of who is an example in the past or in the present of um, this kind of intention. For instance, I vow to live in peace. You know, you might put a picture of Gandhi up on your wall or Mother Teresa, you know. Um, You might put a picture, I vow to be a field of awakening. You might put Buddha, Avalokiteshvara, and Manjushri, you know. So there's, or you could put a picture of a relative or a friend who um, embodies those qualities for you. That helps nourish the intention. Another thing that helps nourishing the intention is just 
Did you know that every time you uh, work with an intention, uh, every time you manifest that intention, or even a step towards that intention, you nourish the intention. Intentions are like puppies. You know, they need to be frequently fed and cared for. So, um, like, um, for instance, just in, uh, in everyday life, if you say, um, I intend to go to the gym three times a week. Okay, well, maybe, on Monday, maybe Monday comes and you go to the gym. And that's actually nourished your intention to go to the gym. Tuesday comes and you don't go to the gym. Wednesday comes and you don't go to the gym. Thursday comes and you don't go to the gym. And then Friday you say, oh no, I said I vow to go to the gym three times a week. Okay, I only have Friday, Saturday, and Sunday left. So I better do it twice in the next three days. So then, um, then you do go Friday. And then Saturday comes and the family has something and Sunday comes and you decide to sleep in. So you only did it twice. But you did it. Okay. So, um, so for me, uh, I, uh, I had the intention when I became president of the San Francisco Zen Center, a job that I had previously refused twice because I was scared of being that busy. So I had the intention to do five nourishing things every day so that every action in that job could flow forth from shamatha. And those things are, uh, every day I want to sit, sit, zazen, um, do a personal service that I do every day that acknowledges my teachers and um, says the basic sutras that I'm trying to study. So zazen, service, yoga, study, and go outside and play. So when I first started this job a year ago, I couldn't even do one. I mean, to be perfectly honest, it was too confusing. You know, it was too debilitating just to be in that job and be in the path of the fire hose of people's requests. But uh, gradually I was able, even if it was only five minutes, to do one and then add five minutes of another and five minutes of another and those five minutes were enormously valuable they set the whole they they uh, established the whole practice they held the whole place so even if you can only fulfill your intention for five minutes or one second that nourishes the intention And um, when the intention is nourished, the consciousness is nourished. So the consciousness becomes a field of awakening. So this is an incredible thing. It's a kind of an alchemy. Which means, um, before I was uh, practicing shamatha with this intensity, um, the last time I went to visit my mother, stay in her house, and help with the relatives, visit the relatives, um, it was a few years ago. She was still able to pick me up at the airport, and she did. Then we went outside, and the car was lost. You know, we went to the parking lot, and she absolutely didn't know where the car was. And so we found the car, but it took an hour. Then we got in the car, and we got on the freeway, I guess highway they're called, 
there. We got on the highway, and um, she couldn't decide whether to be on the highway or go off on an exit. So we ended up, the exit was like this, in a, kind of a V, and we ended up on the point of the V, kind of, should I, should, you know, yes, no, yes, no, yes, no. And there was a giant semi behind us going, Bwah! you know, so at that point I lost it. And uh, I looked at my watch, and I realized that for every year of practice, I had gained three minutes of equanimity with my mother. (laughs) But that was it. It was gone now. (laughs) And she wasn't doing anything. You know, she wasn't like trying to make me mad or something. She was being perfect. She was being nice. She was picking me up. It was just because of ancient twisted karma born through body, speech, and mind from beginningless greed, hate, and delusion. My irritation, my anger, my aversion would come up in this situation. Also, fear of death. (laughs) And at that time, there was nothing I could do to get that equanimity back. I mean, we finally did one thing or the other, and I was in the car going, "Ah, ah, ah, ah." and that was that. That was it. And then the whole rest of the time, I spent trying to save myself like trying to take little breaks here and there, uh, being irritated and then, you know, running out of the house and going, <laughs> so that was that visit. That was a few years ago. <laughs> this visit was different. So um, this visit, um, I returned to Shamatha, and Shamatha has been established Um, as a value in my life. So I was able to turn over what happened. It wasn't me, actually. It was that establishment of shamatha with those, the the establishment of those examples for shamatha in my life. The examples of people who who embody my intention and the habit of turning towards that intention. Um, has been established enough that I could actually, um, it was given to me to remember it again and again, which was really helpful because instead of fear of death, it's actual sickness, old age, and death that are manifesting there, including mine, because uh, my mother's husband actually has Alzheimer's, and so he's up all night saying that people stole the bathroom and stuff like that. So he can't find the bathroom, so someone must have done something with it. Because he has to create that kind of explanation to keep his sense of continuity. It's very um, uh, poignant. And so there was not not much sleep available. And um, so I was feeling physically tired. And uh, also there was a lot of agitation because he absolutely would not accept that Alzheimer's diagnosis. He, he thinks it's uh, thieves and crooks are saying that. You know, 
So it's very, very poignant because it's so clear. So, but the, uh, the shamatha practice, the, the practice of knowing who embodies one's intention and of being willing to work with the intention, even if only for five minutes, even if only lying awake at night, listening to the sounds of banging and crashing uh, as someone tries to find their shirts, which they know that someone has stolen. You know, even if it's only that five minutes, it establishes a thread of continuity and hope and the possibility of, st- of being stable and comfortable in one's current circumstances, even being joyful. So uh, in um, the Zen tradition, there's something called the Four Vows, which you've probably heard of. Sentient beings are numberless. I vow to save them is the first one. But what is it to save a sentient being? You know, to save a sentient being means to uh, be willing to be one with them, to understand their causes and conditions, to understand and be, and be open to their heart and their mind. And this goes with forgiveness. And when one um, is able to see a being this way, and there's innumerable beings. Um, one realizes that the whole field of all of one's experience, moment after moment, is a field for possible awakening. And to save a sentient being really means to allow that sentient being to save us. So that's what shamatha allows the possibility of. So um, it's possible to maintain this sense of nourishment in the midst of a busy life. Uh, For instance, when I first started sitting zazen, um, I uh, couldn't sit in, I couldn't bring myself to sit in my house, in my apartment. So I decided there were um, two coffee breaks a day at work and I was going to take 10 minutes of one of them to sit. And that's what I did. And it changed my whole life. Because um, I'm uh, messy, you know, for, by uh, inclination. And so I was a, a designer drafts person at this architectural firm. And there would be stacks of paper all over the drawing board, so I couldn't even move the parallel rule. You know, so on top of the drawing that I was actually working on were lots and lots of other drawings and papers and lots of phone messages that I hadn't answered and all kinds of stuff. But I, would re- I realized that as I sat there for 10 minutes, um, what came up for me was uh, papers, papers, <laughs> papers, papers, unfinished, unfinished. And I realized there was something to take care of there. And so I started um, spending the first hour of work every day to uh, look at all the work and to pull out two or three things that were important for right then. And that just changed my whole life. It gave me a, a different, uh, different thing to do, which was very helpful and encouraging. 
it's possible to do this even as the CEO, you know, which in the middle of making up one's mind what's important, there are four phone calls. Still possible to hold to that intention. So um, that's called being willing to stay with the purpose. So those are the conditions in um, the larger version of conditions. And you know that um, in a monastery, these conditions are given to you. Which means that um, a lot of times when monks leave the monastery, they get in trouble. You know, if they leave their monastic practice, like for instance, if someone's temporarily a monk, is a monk for their training, and then they go out and are a teacher or something, often they get into trouble. But if you establish these conditions in your own body and mind in the midst of a busy life, those muscles are conditioned in you. You can never lose that practice. Never. That has been established in you. So um, that's, and you become a monastery in the midst of a busy life. So let me say the conditions in brief. So these are the, uh, Lama Lodra says these in Walking Through Walls, in how is it possible to look at, uh, to uh, understand the practice of shamatha in the midst of a busy life. It's only about two sentences. He says the important things are to be willing to let go of unwholesome conceptions and also neutral ones that generate the fight and flight response. So I've I've been working with the sentence for about uh, two or three years. So unwholesome conceptions are easy to let go of. I mean, they're not that easy to let go of, right? But they're fairly easy to let go of because they have giant red flags all over them. Red flags that say things like jerk, moron, you know, stuff like that. Impossible. Okay, so that's, those are examples of unwholesome conceptions. So letting go of those is letting go of objectification and projection. It's being willing to, to refrain from seeing the world or yourself as an object. So that's one of the primary um, conditions in brief. And that's the first one. And it's, it's really worth it to cultivate that, this, uh, this mind, this heart. And if one does, then gross distractions and gross um, difficulties and uh, defilements, such as um, swearing and uh, then having people hit you or come at you, um, clear up. Um, And if there's unfinished business in in, in one's life, one can acknowledge it and move on. acknowledge it, finish it, and move on. And then one's life becomes simple, even if many, many things come up. And uh, it becomes possible to actually do the second one, which is much more complex and much more subtle, which is to examine neutral conceptions that generate the fight-and-flight response. So an example of such a neutral conception is uh, fear of heights generates the fight-and-flight response, but it's neutral. It's not unwholesome. You're not saying, you bad height. No, it's more like, ah, 
you know, it's more like that. So that, those are harder to work with because they're very, very deeply entrenched. Often they're pre-verbal, very old in us, very deep in us. Definitely possible to work with in a phys- physical and physiological and energetic way. Anyway, this is a little bit of the outline of some of the practice of shamatha. Now, uh, if, it's o- if it's okay with you, it's um, a little after 10.45, but I'd just like to say a few words specifically about practicing with that in a business situation such as property management or sangha negotiations. Because, yeah. In the of the ask question, uh, yeah, you can ask questions. What we have said makes sense in No, that's not so. So that's a good. That's a really good question, because if you don't have money and if you don't have a, a good place to stay, um, or if you live in a war, then it is definitely still possible to practice in that way, in this way. And uh, so I'm sorry if I created a misconception there. So um, my family, the reason they have so much trouble is because my family is a family of Holocaust survivors. And um, so, and I inherited that, um, all, the, all that complex from them. And, um, and they're still living it, uh, definitely still living it. And also, um, uh, I've practiced with poverty, and I've practiced with other difficult conditions. And it's definitely possible. And how it's possible is that the place to practice is right here. You know, there isn't another place to practice. It's right here. And so if we're in the middle of a war, um, do you remember the uh, Paul Rep's statement, drinking a cup of tea, I stop the war. So can we take the nourishment of that cup of tea or that drink of water that's actually come to us? You know, even uh, in India, um, you know, a lot of people sleep on the sidewalk. But it's not just so in India. It's so in the U.S. It's so in San Francisco. It's so on my block. It's so at my house. People are sleeping on the front steps of my house. And some of those people are practicing because they have friends, because they are establishing a value of practice in their own life. At San Francisco Zen Center, there's a group called Sangha X. And Sangha X is a group of people who have been in prison and who are trying to learn how to, um, how to live um, lives that will actually be wholesome and wholesome for themselves and for other people. Sangha X is not limited to San Francisco Zen Center. Sangha X has uh, branches anywhere there's someone who practices in prison, in prison, with people, um, with people um, on hair triggers ready to fight at any moment. 
you know, with the constant threat and violence of the prison setting. And bit by bit, even for five minutes, even for one minute, and even for one breath, it's possible to build this up. Yeah. So um, let's just say if it's possible to build up in this situation, it's definitely possible to build up in a pleasant situation like uh, this is an embarrassment of riches. We have this beautiful new building uh, that uh, the Sangha is about to buy. And how to keep um, a sense of <laughs> universal love for everyone in the Sangha as you decide what color carpet to buy. <laughs> you know, it's, it's definitely possible to do that. It's a, it's, a, it's, a quest, it's a problem of luxury. You know, you all could make the decision to... Um, use recycled carpet. You know, you could make the decision only to go with offerings and let people just offer things. And if they clash, so be it. You know, you can make all kinds of decisions. Or um, you can... um, Okay, I'll tell you a little bit about 366 page. I'm I'm, uh, property managing... Not exactly property... Project managing... Um, John Lombardi, the, uh, the um, property manager at San Francisco and I, are property managing the uh, renovation of a new building that will be used as dormitory space for San Francisco Zen Center. And uh, I'm in charge of it. So um, many decisions are part of this thing. Um, and how do we make these decisions? So the first, the first way is to uh, delegate and trust. You know, to allow some group of people, some small group of people, to make um, decisions and just trust and be willing to live with and accept those decisions that those people make. So that's the first thing, knowing that what they give is an offering. So... Um, we actually got our contractor over the internet, um, and he's a wonderful, wonderful contractor, and um, he has a real sense of care. This is a this is um, this is a miracle. It's a kind of a miracle. And to the donors, and to the sangha, as we go through this project, and cultivate that in everybody who's uh, in on the project. Uh, so it doesn't matter what form the decision-making takes, whether it's committee, whether it's one person, you know, whether the whole sangha comes to a unity decision on each little piece of it. That'll take a lot longer. Uh, if you want models for unity decision, I highly recommend that you speak with some, somebody in the American Friends Service Committee and attend some of the business uh, meetings for uh, worship for business of the Friends because that's a model of unity decision-making. It's not even consensus. It's unity. At the end of that decision-making process, the group has unity. So if you want to, if you want to surprise yourself by the amount of unity that a, a group of people, a group of very different people can have, try that model. It's really amazing. You know, maybe you can get someone to teach you clerking skills. San Francisco Zen Center is doing this. 
Um, but also, you can see if there's someone in the Sangha, um, if there are people who have specific strengths that, they, that this whole Sangha can benefit from as an offering, and recognize those people and their strengths, and then allow those people to develop unity. And that's a little bit uh, faster process. Because if you keep it fewer than seven people um, in a group of people that's making a decision, you'll have a lot easier time. You know, it, as a matter of fact, if it's fewer than three people, it's even easier. <laughs> if it's more than seven, you can't have a conversation in that size group. You can have a meeting, an information meeting. You can have a discussion that expresses concerns, but it's hard to have a conversation. So you need some skilled help to do that. And I trust you. You know, I trust you that in this situation, which is going to be a challenge, um, you're all coming from the heart and mind of awakening. And you're going to have to sharpen up on your, on your uh, skills for actually meeting each other. This is a very individualistic group of people. You don't, uh, you don't, you know, march to the same <laughs> tune. You know, like, think about Tassahara. Wake up bell, 3.40, first zazen, 4 o'clock. You know, sit this way, sit up straight, otherwise somebody comes and adjusts your posture. Mudra is this way. You have a half-inch leeway in where you put it, right? You have to wear a certain thing. This is not those conditions, right? You're very individualistic. So some, some new skills, you know, some skills in um, peaceful conversation and peacefully meeting each other. And many people in the Sangha will actually have these skills. What you want to look for is mothers of teenagers. <laughs> People with facilitation skills, CEOs, uh, if, they're, uh, if they've been practicing. Uh, Norman told a funny story. Uh, somebody uh, told me that uh, Norman, has a, Norman Fisher is um, another one of Gil's and my Dharma sibs. And um, he's now doing a virtual sangha. It's online. And he meet, it meets in various places. Uh, one of the groups is a group of business people. And uh, after a session one time, one CEO approached Norman and said, did you know, he had a st- statistic for Norman, said, did you know that 88% of all CEOs are interested in spiritual pursuits? And Norman said, no, I didn't know that. What an interesting statistic. How strange. And the CEO said, it's true. And Norman said, why do you suppose that is? The guy said, you know, a CEO knows that by the time something crosses his or her desk or comes to his or her attention, that at least six different people have seen it before. You know, the person saw it, their supervisor saw it, the manager, you know, the etc., 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 saw it, and then finally it came to your desk. So you know that by the time it crosses your desk, it is both insoluble and politically nuanced. So he said, so a CEO has direct experience of suffering. (laughs) (laughs) 
And that's why they are interested in spiritual pursuits. So um, I actually took the job, the president job, as, thanks for your question. See you. Okay, thanks. I actually took the job of CEO, uh, president. It's, it's president of a nonprofit and CEO and a for-profit usually. I took the job of president as a kind of a spiritual strength training to be able to see whether it's possible to do such a position from the heart and mind of shamatha. And that is a value that we're working with in meetings at San Francisco Zen Center. If you want to hear more about difficult conversations, there will be a lecture series this fall at San Francisco Zen Center. You can inquire, inquire about it. We're going to have some people, and I don't know how much in-house or um, public it'll be, but if you're representing Gil Sangha, um, you can call up and, you know, we'll make an exception, even if it's, even if it's a, not a public event. But we're going to have Dana Curtis, who's uh, been... Um, um, she's a uh, lawyer uh, and a, uh, who's gone into mediation and is working with forgiveness, principles of forgiveness. She does retreats at Green Gulch for professionals. She trained with Gary Friedem, Friedman. Gary will also come and talk, I think. Um, and uh, Yvonne Rand and Gil. We're going uh, to really do it. We'll find several different people. Um, to, to talk about these issues and to do some in-house training. So um, I highly recommend just looking at the process uh, with all the um, wonderful attention that you've built up in Vipassana practice. And notice especially rage, lust, you know, desire to do. You know, there's dharmas that you can notice that you'll know that there are certain dharmas that are associated with all wholesome minds. And you know that there are certain dharmas associated with all unwholesome minds. And if a dharma associated with an unwholesome mind is present, there are more at that time. So be willing to uh, notice at that time and be willing to apply the same heart and mind of practice that you do in the rest of your life. And I think the Sangha will flourish. And with a teacher like Gil, um, I think you have a lot of support because that's what he's like too. So um, good luck. And it's 11 o'clock, so I really should shut up now so we can stuff envelopes or something. So if you have any questions or anything, just, yeah, I don't know what we should do. Please guide us. <laughs> Okay. No, it's late, so maybe we should have questions other than coming up afterwards. Okay. Is that okay? Thank you. Very much. Thank you.